Welcome back to the mini-series podcast of the Untold History of the United States with our guest in front of the show, Professor Peter Kuznick of the American University. Thank you for being here. Happy to be with you, Matt. Today we will be covering the presidency of John F. Kennedy in the early 1960s. What did the new presidency mean to the United States and the world? Did JFK help promote peace in the world and try to prevent nuclear war with the USSR? What was the relationship between the United States and Cuba? Professor, last time we spoke, we talked a little bit about the Eisenhower administration. I know you want to talk about it a little bit more on this show and how much influence the CIA had on the developing world. The 1960 presidential election was a turning point for America as John F. Kennedy was the first Irish American president to be elected, correct? Yes, first Catholic president we had. And we now have our second Catholic president. But the, uh, the Kennedy story, uh, we really need a little more context to make full sense out of it. Right. And, and that's why I wanted to start off talking about Eisenhower. And the first thing I talked about is Eisenhower's farewell address, where he warns about the military industrial complex and the threat that that poses to democracy and to peace. And that's great. I mean, that really was a highlight of Eisenhower's administration, but Eisenhower knew so much about it partly because he created it. More than anybody else, Eisenhower really deserves credit or blame for having created the military industrial complex. And I, and I say that for a few reasons. First of all, when I, Eisenhower as a military man understood war and therefore he abhorred war for the most part. And he starts off strongly anti-nuclear. He's the only American president on record having condemned the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He told Secretary of War Stimson at Potsdam why he was so strongly opposed to dropping the atomic bombs. He was in Moscow when he learned that the U.S. had bombed Hiroshima. He said, up to that point, I was sure we would maintain friendship with Russia after the war. And now, my, now I started to have my doubts. But he still proposed that the U.S. relinquish all its nuclear weapons to the United Nations and let the United Nations destroy them all. So that was the initial Eisenhower. But then as he becomes a Supreme Commander and the head of NATO, uh, he becomes much more of a proponent of nuclear weapons. When he takes office in 50, January 53, he knows more about nuclear weapons than any other American president up to that point or since really. So he, he knew what he was dealing with. Three days before uh, his inauguration, the United States wiped out the island of Ilugalab with our first hydrogen bomb test. So, uh, we, and then in Eisenhower's uh, inaugural address, he talks about that, that, that science has now given us the capability to end life on the planet, basically. So Eisenhower knows what he's getting into. He immediately gets involved in Korea and is able to extricate the US from Korea, partly by threatening to use nuclear weapons. And Truman had done so earlier, but Eisenhower was seriously considering it. He liked the Kaesong area in North Korea as a target for America's use of tactical nuclear weapons and said so very, very publicly at the time. Uh, but Eisenhower, uh, it, 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 Eisenhower's concern was, he develops a new look defense policy. 
And the New Look defense policy is based upon nuclear weapons no longer being America's last resort, but now being America's first resort. And he and Admiral Radford, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, make these public statements, as does Dulles, to the effect that, uh, that we have to erase the line between conventional weapons and nuclear weapons. <clears throat> and we've got to convince the public that nuclear weapons are legitimate and usable. And he and Dulles de decry the taboo against the use of nuclear weapons on several occasions. So they're going to try to get the world to accept the use of nuclear weapons. Their strategy was an interesting one. On December 8th, 1953, Eisenhower makes his famous Adams for Peace speech at the United Nations, <clears throat> which he calls for developing and sharing the peaceful atom. He was told at the time, uh, and the strategy was based on the idea, if we can get people to accept the legitimacy of nuclear power for civilian uses, then they will accept more easily the use of nuclear weapons in warfare. It's a dastardly kind of thinking and a dangerous one. Uh, but it's shortly after he makes that speech in December, we've got the Lucky Dragon incident in, uh, in Japan. Uh, the United States tests its atomic bombs, the Bravo test in uh, the, the Marshalls, uh, the Marshall Islands, and uh, it not only irradiates many Marshall Islanders and some US troops, but it also affects this Japanese fishing trawler, the Fukuyu uh, uh, Maru Daigo, um, Fukuyu Daigo Maru, uh, Lucky Dragon number five. And the 23 uh, fishermen aboard that are irradiated with nuclear weapon. Actually, there are probably a thousand ships in that area that were affected by this. Louis Straws, the head of the Atomic Energy Commission says that the, Russia, the, the Japanese boat was a, Russia, a Russian a communist spy outfit, a red spy outfit, he says. Nonsense. But what happens is the world's attention gets fixated on this. The term fallout enters a lexicon in a big way. The world is becoming obsessed with the threat of atmospheric nuclear testing. The, much of the tuna on, those, on that boat was actually sold and around the world. And then there's a boycott of fish and tuna and an international panic over radioactivity, especially as the sailors, the, soldier, the uh, fishermen aboard the, the uh, Lucky Dragon number five get uh, sicker and sicker. So uh, the world's becoming aware of it. And Nehru, the Indian prime minister, says that American leaders are self-centered lunatics who will destroy anybody who gets in their way. Eisenhower and Dulles admit that in the eyes of the world, we're being looked upon like the Nazis were looked upon before. We're seen as warmongers, as out of control, dangerous force in the world. This is in the mid 1950s. It was in 1955 that Bertrand Russell and Albert Einstein issued the Einstein-Russell Manifesto. Einstein's letter to Bertrand Russell signing off on this was the last letter that Albert Einstein ever wrote before he passed away. And what they say there was drafted by Joseph Rotblat and signed by, I think it was 11 of the world's leading scientists. And they say that, uh, that people have got to deal with their humanity. 
is that if in a, a nuclear war, if if Russia, if Moscow, uh, New York, and London were wiped out within a few centuries, the human species will recover. But the real risk now is that there's going to be an all-out nuclear war in which nobody will be left alive. So in the 1950s, we've got this awareness that the policies being advocated by the U.S. with the Russians trying to catch up because the Russians test their hydrogen bomb. You remember that the, U the Russians tested their atomic bomb four years after the United States. They test their hydrogen bomb less than a year after the United States does. So the arms race is going full, full throttle at this point and people are getting more and more alarmed all across the planet. So, but this was Eisenhower's policy. So now Eisenhower's big fear was that the US was gonna bankrupt itself by building up conventional arms, that the uh, armies and the equipment they use were so costly that it would be much cheaper if we relied on nuclear weapons. So that was Eisenhower's uh, reasoning for going full, full out on nuclear weapons, and he did. So when Eisenhower takes office, the US has a little more than a thousand nuclear weapons. When Eisenhower leaves office, the US has more than 22,000 nuclear weapons. When Eisenhower's budgeting cycle was over, the US had 30,000 nuclear weapons. When Eisenhower took office, nuclear weapons were in the control of the civilians. When Eisenhower, but during the Eisenhower administration, they're transferred to the Pentagon and the military so they can be more easily used. When Eisenhower takes office, they're our last resort. When he leaves office, the nuclear weapons are America's first resort. When Eisenhower takes office, there's one finger on the nuclear button. When Eisenhower leaves office, he has now delegated authority to a lot of other military leaders in case they're out of touch with the White House and they think that's a crisis that demands them to use nuclear weapons, they have authority to do that. And he gave them authority to subdelegate, which means that the commanders under them also had that authority. So now we've got dozens of fingers on the nuclear button. The Pentagon, during the early Kennedy period, McGeorge Bundy asked Dan Ellsberg to find out from the Joint Chiefs of Staff how many people would be killed from America's use of nuclear weapons. This is America's first PSYOP, PSYOP 62, a strategic integrated operational plan to set off an inventive war to shoot off our entire nuclear arsenal in one fell swoop at once. And, they, and uh, Dan was told by the Joint Chiefs that this would cause America's weapons alone would cause between 600 million and 650 million deaths. So at least a hundred holocausts. Uh, what we now know is that, of course, the effects of nuclear winter would have meant that everybody would have been killed if we ever did that. Uh, so but this is the content, the, the background. So one of the things we need to mention in this regard, in 1957, October 4th, 1957, is when the Soviets launched Sputnik. Uh, that was shocking to the world that the Soviets launched the first space satellite uh, the, uh, they had already that summer launched the first intercontinental, tested the first intercontinental ballistic yeah. missile in August of 1957. So then on October 4th, they launched Sputnik, this first space satellite. It weighed 184 pounds, 22.8 uh, inches in diameter, circled the globe, and 
people began to freak out. Um, Lyndon Johnson says it's going to be like uh, dropping bombs on you on us from space, like kids dropping rocks onto cars from freeway overpasses. Um, General LeMay was asked uh, uh, if he was planning to send a fleet of bombers around the world to impress the Russians. And he says, I'm sure it will if they bother to look down. So people were making all these jokes, but the reality was people were getting very, very nervous. Eisenhower tried to downplay the significance. He says, it's not a big deal. So they put one small ball into the air. Eisenhower, to show his indifference, played five rounds of golf that week. And the reason why Eisenhower was so nonplussed is because the U-2 flights, America's secret spy planes, uh, Alan Dulles later said, I was able to get a look at every blade of grass in the Soviet Union. Uh, it wasn't quite true at that point, but we knew that we were way ahead of the Soviet Union in terms of actual military capabilities. But, uh, but then on November 3rd, soon thereafter, the Soviets launched Sputnik 2. Now this is no longer a little, uh, little satellite. This is a massive six ton satellite that uh, carries a live dog named Leica. Uh, and so at this point, the United States is very alarmed and American citizens are very alarmed. The US tries to respond by launching its own satellite with a Vanguard rocket and the satellite stayed aloft for a total of two seconds. It reached a height of four feet. So the newspapers were making fun of this the satellite. They said it was a grapefruit-sized sphere. They called it Kaputnik, Flopnik, Stayputnik. And so the Americans were behind, uh, but this was quite ominous. Uh, there's a, a, a commission is set up uh, headed by uh, H. Rowan Gaither of the Ford Foundation and that, uh, that predicted that the Soviets would soon be able to launch an attack with ICBMs carrying megaton nuclear warheads that would pretty much wipe out the United States. The Gaither Report, the Washington Post summary says, the still top secret Gaither Report portrays the United States in the gravest danger in its history. So there was a whole national discussion in the US. What happened to our, uh, our technology and our advantages? What happened to our educational system? What happened to our strength and our national sense of national purpose? So it's in that context that the Joint Chiefs are calling for a tremendous increase in America's missiles and nuclear weaponry. The Strategic Air Command <clears throat> says they want <clears throat> 3,000 more nuclear weapons. Uh, so there's this national panic going on basically that the Americans are so far behind and the reality, of course, is that the United States, that was not the case, but it was based upon that, that John Kennedy bases a lot of his campaign in 1960 for the presidency. So Kennedy runs on the basis of this missile gap, uh, which turns out was not true. Uh, but that was, Kennedy's relying on uh, Alsop's reports to him and Alsop is talking about that by 1962, the US might have 130 intercontinental ballistic missiles, but the Soviets could have 2000 by that point. So this alarm is spreading. On top of that, in January, on New Year's Day in 1959, the uh, revolution takes place in Cuba and Fidel Castro sweeps into power. 
overthrowing Batista and American interests. So that's a, another very, very important development before Kennedy takes office. So Kennedy rides in there on the basis of this missile gap and the US being behind. And Kennedy is very much, when he's elected, very much of a Cold War hawk. The Kennedy who emerges in 1963 is gonna be very different, largely because of the experiences, but he has some other experiences in his life that are also going to encourage a much more peaceful and progressive view of the world. It actually ties in because the Eisenhower administration um, had dealt with Cuba and Fidel Castro and John F. Kennedy is the one who somewhat um, takes over basically from the previous administration, correct? Exactly. Um, Eisenhower put in plans what's going to turn into the Bay of Pigs invasion. And we train 1,500 Cuban exiles in Guatemala uh, on the assumption what Kennedy was told was that when they invaded, so it's a CIA operation to invade Cuba with these Cuban exiles, and he was told that the uh, anti-Castro Cubans were going to rise up and overthrow the government. Some of the administration officials were opposed to this crazy idea. <clears throat> but Kennedy felt that at that point, being so young and inexperienced, that he could not challenge an operation that had been planned by General Eisenhower and the CIA and the Joint Chiefs. So he warned them that he was not going to send in military support, but nobody believed him that he wouldn't send in military support if this operation was compromised. So they go in there and after having, after first the US bombs and destroys half of Cuba's air force, three days, I think it was three days before the Bay of Pigs invasion begins. So they go in there and rather, and they were captured, they were captured or killed by the Cuban military. Uh, there was no uprising at all. And the, uh, the military leaders try to, and the intelligence chiefs try meet with Kennedy and try to pressure him to send in support, military support. And this is a meeting that goes on at midnight, starts before midnight on April 18th and goes on for hours and they berate Kennedy and Kennedy refuses to send in military support. Uh, General Lyman Lemonitzer, who is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff says that pulling out the rug was unbelievable absolutely reprehensible, almost criminal. Uh, but Kennedy refuses to send in the troops. And that's going to begin to change Kennedy's mind and attitude about the, about the military. Uh, Kennedy realized what a disaster it is. He takes responsibility for what happens there. But it's going to sour him on the military and the intelligence community. Uh, he says to Arthur Schlesinger afterwards, he says, if somebody comes to tell me this or that about the minimum wage bill, I have no hesitation in overruling them. But you always assume that the military and the intelligence people have some secret skill not available to ordinary mortals. He told the journalist Ben Bradley, says, the first advice I'm going to give my successor is to watch the generals and to avoid feeling that just because they're military men, their opinions on military matters were worth a damn. So then Kennedy decides, I'm gonna, he said, I'm gonna sh shake up the Joint Chiefs, sons of bitches, and those CIA bastards. 
He says he's going to shatter the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter it in the winds. He uh, names General Maxwell Taylor to replace Lemnitzer as chair of the Joint Chiefs. He fires the three top people in the CIA, including Alan Dulles. He puts the CIA under the charge and command of the local ambassadors all across the world uh, and uh, takes, starts cutting the CIA budget for a 20% uh, reduction by 1966. So Kennedy is going to certainly create enemies in the intelligence community and in the military with his uh, refusal to, to go along. Yeah, he uh, told Schlesinger that he says, uh, after the, he says, uh, uh, Schlesinger says, Kennedy had contempt for the Joint Chiefs. He dismissed them as a bunch of old men. He thought Lemnitzer was a dope and he was a dope. And the plans that they came up with were absurd plans. When Lemnitzer briefed Kennedy about America's war plans, including a surprise attack on the Soviet Union to wipe out the Soviet Union with nuclear weapons, Kennedy just upped and left the meeting. It said, you know, and, he, and he, after one of these briefings, he, he commented, <clears throat> he said, and we call ourselves the human race. So Kennedy was beginning to learn, uh, but it wasn't gonna go smoothly at first. He was gonna have his first uh, summit with Khrushchev in Geneva, and that was gonna be a disaster in the spring of 19, 61, and then there's gonna be the Berlin crisis and Kennedy on July 25th, 61, is gonna make his famous speech talking about the, the international crisis and the tensions. And he calls for additional three and a half billion dollars defense spending, increasing draft calls to make possible 25% expansion in the size of the army, bringing up reserve and national guard units, national fallout shelter program, I mean, we we're on the verge of war there at that point. People thought war was imminent. Uh, and then the uh, Soviets or the East Germans begin building the Berlin Wall. And, and uh, then there's a, a confrontation there. Kennedy sends Lyndon Johnson as vice president there as a military standoff. And Kennedy says, uh, it says, a wall is not a very nice solution, but a wall is a hell of a lot better than a war. But at that point, then they resume atmospheric testing and the military buildup continues and it's gonna continue for another year. So that's, uh, the, the, it's getting very tense at that point. And part of what's going on is, so the, the, uh, immediately when Kennedy gets in there, he asks McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, because now Kennedy has this, this cabinet of, they, they were dubbed the best and the brightest as Halberstam calls them in his wonderful book. And there's a somewhat ironic sense, but these people were renowned for their brilliance. They all wrote books. You know, they were all highly educated. Even the postmaster general had written a book, a bad book, but he wrote a book. And, uh, but you get McGeorge Bundy, the national security advisor, was the first person to get perfect scores on all three entrance exams into Yale. Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, part of the whiz kids in the Air Force, and then at Ford Motor Company, uh, McNamara was in a briefing uh, at what was in the pipeline to, to sync pack. And uh, it's an eight, an eight hour briefing or longer. And after eight hours, uh, he says, stop, stop the projectors. 
this slide, number 869, contradicts slide 11 that he'd seen eight hours earlier. So as people commented, including Lyndon Johnson, when you walked around McNamara, you can hear the, the, the gears of the computer going in his mind. So these people were very, very brilliant. And they brought us not only the Bay of Pigs disaster, almost the Cuban Missile Crisis disaster, and almost the Vietnam disaster. But Kennedy's going to have to learn, and he's going to have to learn quickly because the situation is getting more and more ominous and more and more dangerous. What the Kennedy brought in were these kind of liberal internationalists, some of the same types we're seeing in the Biden administration. They believed in American empire. They believed in a can-do spirit. They thought the United States should dictate to the world. They were young. As Kennedy says you know, in, in his inaugural address, which is fascinating in a lot of ways, but he says there that this is a new generation, that they were born in the 20th century, uh, you know, that, that, that we're handing the power over to this new generation of forward-thinking liberal progressives who believed in the American exceptionalism, but uh, we're going to do it in a smarter and more progressive way than ever before. They don't do that, especially not the first two years in, in office for, for Kennedy. Third year, he is going to wake up and he is going to realize that the course he'd been taking was disastrous. And Kennedy always had that sense. I mean, he and his brother Robert had gone to Vietnam in the early 50s, and they saw what was happening to the French in Vietnam. And so as Robert later says, you know, we weren't gonna make those same mistakes about sending American troops there. Uh, there was a lot of ambivalence, but you could see the seeds for the potential for growth in the Kennedy brothers, uh, all three of them. In, in many regards, and the people who they brought on. So you've got the John Kenneth Galbraiths, you've got uh, you know Schlesinger, you've got a lot of people who are much more progressive in this administration, George Ball and others. And Adlai Stevenson as UN ambassador uh, was also in many ways more progressive, but they still had a, shared a Cold War mindset. They hadn't broken out of that Cold War mindset yet. And the country as a whole, hadn't broken out of that Cold War mindset, but Kennedy's gonna be ahead of the curve. And we're lucky that Kennedy was, because had somebody else been in power, had Barack Obama been in power in October of 62, at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, then the world would have ended, or much of, most of it would have been blown up. But Kennedy, Kennedy stood up, uh, and very many times, he was the only one in the room who was standing up to the generals. He was the only one in the room who was standing up to his civilian advisors. He'd be the only one in the room who would resist the invasion of Cuba, first bombing those missile sites and then invading and overthrowing the Castro government. And we had no idea what we were gonna find if we went in there. The Cuban Missile Crisis is in many ways the real turning point for Kennedy. Because in the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, you know, it begins October 14th, when US surveillance planes noticed missile bases inside of Cuba. Khrushchev had promised Kennedy that there'd be no offensive weapons introduced into Cuba and no crisis in 1962. And um, that didn't happen. So uh, the US finds that, that, that the Soviets had been putting missile bases, building missile bases in Cuba. And so Kennedy announces a quarantine. 
Kennedy goes public with his information on October 22nd uh, and announces we're going to have a quarantine, which is really a barricade around Cuba um, and where, um, which is an act of war. Uh, so, the, the, so, as, so we set up this line and if the Soviets try to cross that line with weapons and Soviet uh, ships and submarines, then we were going to, uh, well, we we're going to try to, we were going to stop them. But a Soviet B-59 uh, submarine was moving toward American, American line and the USS Randolph started dropping depth charges on, on it. This is October 25th the day that Arthur Schlesinger say was not only the most dangerous day in the Cold War, it was the most dangerous day in all history. And it wasn't and really, because the US was by dropping the depth charges, managed to knock out all the electricity in that Soviet sub uh, and the carbon dioxide levels were rising. The temperatures were, uh, were way out of control to the point where the heat and the carbon dioxide had had sailor after sailor fainting in the Soviet sub. Savitsky, the commander, says we're down here doing somersaults. The war has probably started up above us. He says we're going to be betraying the Soviet Union, and he orders the nuclear torpedo to be ready to launch. Americans had no idea that there was a nuclear torpedo on that plane. It would have taken out the American fleet there, and. Uh, but fortunately, uh, Vasily Arkhipov, who was the number two on that ship, talks Savitsky down and convinces him not to launch the nuclear submarine. We came within minutes of a nuclear war on October 25th, 1962. There were other incidents during the Cuban Missile Crisis that also brought us to the verge of nuclear war false reports here and there, assaults, attacks, incoming missiles. It was a disaster. Uh, and what Kennedy and Khrushchev understood was that they had lost control, that in a crisis like this, even though they were both doing everything they could to prevent a war and a nuclear war, uh, that neither of them could control it anymore. When the Cubans shot down a, U a US U-2 surveillance flight, uh, Khrushchev had ordered them not to sh not to shoot at these uh, at these flights, but yet it was disobeyed. It was that kind of thing that made them realize that they had lost control. So what what happens though is everybody's urging the Kennedy to invade, and Kennedy's stalling for time, hopes of finding another solution without an invasion. Khrushchev writes Kennedy a remarkable letter, and then a second letter. Uh, and we're trying to craft a deal to end this. And the Soviets realize that they've got to end this. And, th and then they get word that the American invasion is beginning. But what the Americans uh, were planning on was to invade Cuba. Uh, and the Americans had their, their troops ready to go and they had their planes ready to go and going to bomb and invade. But our intelligence was so faulty, we had identified the location of 33 of the 42 intermediate range ballistic missiles, but not the others. We had no idea where the nuclear warheads were. And when the US planned to invade, we assumed that there were 10,000 armed Soviets in Cuba and 100,000 armed Cubans. 
So 10,000 Soviet military and 100,000 armed Cubans. Based upon that, McNamara estimated that there'd be 1,800 US casualties and 4,500 US dead. He later finds out that there were not 10,000 Soviets military, there were 42,000 Soviet military. There were not 100,000 armed Cubans, there were 270,000 armed Cubans. He then raises the estimate of American dead to 25,000. Years later, literally 30 years later, he finds out that in addition, the Soviets had put in 100 battlefield nuclear weapons. McNamara turned white when he learned that. He says, well, that would have meant that we would have lost 100,000 in the invasion, 100,000 Americans would have died. We would have definitely taken out Cuba and very likely, almost certainly, taken out the Soviet Union also. <clears throat> so that's the, the reality. Time, the US has a, in every category, in bombs and delivery systems, at least a 10 to one advantage over the Soviets and in certain capacities, a 100 to one advantage. So we would have wiped out the Soviet Union probably wiped out ourselves as well. Uh, and it, it was just, and we came so close to having done this, um, which is why <clears throat> the Cuban Missile Crisis is a wake up call to Kennedy and to Khrushchev and to others involved all around the world. People didn't know how close we came to absolute disaster. Afterwards, uh, Khrushchev, you know, and, and, and in many ways, Khrushchev, deserves the lion's share of the credit, accepting a deal that was gonna ultimately lead to his getting toppled. I mean, Khrushchev's attitude was, when Khrushchev first got briefed about nuclear weapons in 1953, he said he couldn't sleep for days. He, had, he could not sleep for days after he learned about the power of nuclear weapons. And he, he says later, he told Norman Cousins, uh, the editor of Saturday Review, he said, peace is the most important goal in the world. If we don't have peace and the nuclear bombs start to fall, what difference will it make whether we are communists or Catholics or capitalists or Chinese or Russians or Americans? Who could tell us apart? Who will be left to tell us apart? You know, and Kennedy had, had the same idea. Unlike Eisenhower, who said, I'd rather be dead than red, or Eisenhower's actual words, where I'd rather be atomized than communized. Kennedy said, I'd rather my children, he said, I'd rather my children be red than dead. So a very, very different attitude. But Khrushchev reaches out. He writes Kennedy a long letter on October 30th, right after the crisis. And he says, evil has brought some good. The good is that now people have felt more tangibly the breathing of the burning flames of thermonuclear war have a more clear realization of the threat looming over them if the arms races not stop. He says that, that, that he assumes Americans felt as much anxiety as all other peoples, expecting that thermonuclear war would break out at any moment. He says that in light of this, we have to eliminate everything in our relations capable of generating a new crisis. So he calls for a non-aggression treaty between NATO and the Warsaw Pact. He says, why not disband all military blocks? He says, let's have a treaty to end all nuclear weapons testing everywhere. Uh, he says, well, let's solve the problem over Germany and China and move to get rid of every possible conflict that could ever cause another crisis between us. 
uh, and Kennedy's slow to respond, but Kennedy finally gets it. Uh, Harriman and for, former ambassador, now under secretary of state, meets with them and he, and he writes to Kennedy, he says, Khrushchev is serious. He wants uh, to create peace. He's reaching out to us. Uh, and so, so we've got this and Norman Cousins meets with Khrushchev twice and, and comes back with these glowing reports and says that Kennedy's got to do more. Khrushchev's getting frustrated. Kennedy is not willing to take bolder actions. So what does Kennedy do in the last year? You know, he effectively uh, moves on a whole series of fronts uh, to not only accommodate the Soviets, but to actually create international peace. Uh, basically what Kennedy does, um, Kennedy does a number of things. And, I, and let me put this in a, in a different context. Um, well, let me just mention some of the things. Kennedy calls for ending the, the space race. That had been Kennedy's signature initiative to, to, uh, to beat the Soviets to the moon. But now Kennedy says, uh, call, in September of 1963, shocks people and calls for a, a joint US-Soviet expedition to the moon. He says, why should man's first flight to the moon be a matter of national competition? You know, and he, and he says uh, that we should work together to the moon. He, he accepts a neutralist solution in Laos. He uh, supports the, arm, the partial nuclear test ban treaty, the first uh, nuclear treaty between the U.S. first arms control treaty between the United States and the Soviet Union. Ted Sorensen, Kennedy's friend and speechwriter, says that nothing that uh, Kennedy accomplished in his time in office gave him more gratification than the limited than the partial arms control treaty that stopped atmospheric testing. Kennedy acknowledges across the board to person after person that he wants to end the U.S. involvement in Vietnam. Um, the uh, and and signals that that if he gets as soon as he gets elected the second term he's going to pull U.S. troops out of Vietnam, and he commissions NSC, NSAM 263, which removes the first thousand troops from from Vietnam in '63 and the rest rest by 1965, and uh, so many people have attested to Kennedy's intention there as well. He gave this incredible speech at American University, where I teach, uh, at, at a commencement address in June of 1963. And he didn't want any input from the Joint Chiefs, the CIA, or the State Department in writing it. And he calls for, he says, what kind of peace do I mean? What kind of peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war. I'm talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living. Uh, it goes on and on. It's a beautiful speech, probably the greatest American speech, presidential speech of the 20th century, and calls for an end to the Cold War, basically, an end to the Cold War. So, I mean, so Kennedy is moving simultaneously on all these fronts. He's also supporting third world nationalism and one thing after another. And uh, he's even reaching out to Castro. 
the French journalist Jean Daniel visited Kennedy before he was going out to Castro to interview Castro. And Kennedy uh, basically reaches out to Castro. Uh, at the same time, we've got these assassination attempts going on. Same time, we've got this mass terrorist project, uh, Operation Mongoose going on. Part of the reason why the Soviets had put those nuclear weapons in Cuba was because the United States was actually planning to invade Cuba before the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, and, and putting the missiles into Cuba was also gonna offset some of the American military advantage with our missiles in Turkey, as well as our greater capability against the Soviet Union. The problem that the mistake that Khrushchev made is that he didn't announce that the nuclear weapons were in Cuba. Had he announced that the nuclear weapons were in Cuba, then they would have served as a deterrent and the US would not have been able to invade Cuba and the US would uh, not have been able to you know, bomb the uh, missile sites because the Soviets had their actual working deterrent. But Khrushchev was saving it as a surprise for November 7th for the anniversary of the Soviet, of, of the Russian Revolution. So um, I think it was the 45th anniversary. So, um, but so but Kennedy and Khrushchev had both learned the lessons of this. And then Kennedy uh, read an advanced copy in the summer of 1962 of the book, Seven Days in May, that was written by Fletcher Kniebel and Charles Bailey. And in the book, there's a military coup in the United States. Uh, Niebel had actually interviewed General Curtis LeMay. LeMay was one of the members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. LeMay was the most aggressive in pushing Kennedy to invade Cuba. Even after the Cuban Missile Crisis was over, LeMay said, let's go in there and finish them off. And Kennedy says, but what about the consequences? And, uh, and what, are, what, is, what are the Soviets going to do? LeMay says they're not going to do anything. And, and Kennedy says, of course they're going to do something. They'll at least move, move to take over Berlin. And LeMay says, no, they won't do anything. LeMay actually welcomed the nuclear war with the Soviet Union. LeMay felt the United States had such an advantage at that point that this was the strongest we'd ever be vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. And he welcomed the nuclear war. So, but after uh, Niebel interviewed LeMay, he writes this book, Seven Days in May, which is, you've got a liberal president who concludes an arms control agreement with the Soviets, and then there's a military coup to overthrow him. And Kennedy read the advanced copy, and he said to a friend, said, it's possible it could happen in this country if, for example, the country had a young president and he had a bay of pigs, there would be a certain uneasiness. Maybe the military would do a little criticizing behind his back, but this would be written off as a usual military dissatisfaction with civilian control. Then if there were another bay of pigs, the reaction of the country would be, is he too young and inexperienced? The military would almost feel that it was their patriotic obligation to stand ready to preserve the integrity of the nation. And only God knows just what segment of democracy they would be defending if they overthrew the elected establishment. Then if there was a third Bay of Pigs, it could happen. And so what, what uh, I've argued, what Oliver Stone and I have argued is that the United States had multiple Bays of Pigs in which the military and the intelligence community felt totally betrayed. 
uh, it began with the, with the original Bay of Pigs, then with the disempowering of the CIA and the firing of its leaders, then opting for a neutralist solution in Laos, then the concluding the atmospheric test ban treaty, which the military hated, then planning to disengage from Vietnam, then flirting with ending the Cold War, then abandoning the space race, encouraging third world nationalism, and maybe worst of all, uh, accepting a negotiated settlement in the Cuban Missile Crisis. The military, many of them hated Kennedy. Many people in the intelligence community hated Kennedy. They certainly were not sad to see him go when he was assassinated in 1963. Maybe they were more than just not sad to see him go. We don't know for sure, but there's circumstantial evidence to suggest that maybe other forces were involved besides Lee Harvey Oswald. The Warren Commission report with the magic bullet theory and the single gunman was not believed by Americans when it came out in 1964 and has not been believed by Americans since. In fact, four of the seven members of the Warren Commission harbored their own serious doubts about the lone gunman and magic bullet theories. Lyndon Johnson uh, doubted it. Governor John Conley, who'd also been wounded in the attack in Dallas, doubted it. Robert Kennedy doubted it. The American people have doubted it ever since. So um, it was a sad, a tragic end. Sad end because Kennedy and Khrushchev really were reaching out to change the world. And Professor, final question. What, yes. can, my, what can my generation take from the leadership of both Kennedy and Khrushchev? The nuclear threat has not abated. Existential threats to our, to, to our, our planet have not dissipated. And on top of the nuclear threat, you know, the, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, the bullet and the atomic scientists moved the hands of the doomsday clock back to 12 minutes before midnight. Uh, now the hands of the doomsday clock are 100 seconds before midnight. This is the closest, we, the most dangerous situation we've been in since the Cuban Missile Crisis, since 1962. And, it's, and with, with Trump in office now, acting in a delusional and deranged way, I mean, he's, he's acting like a madman and has been since the end of September, that first debate, when he stormed around the stage and was ye yelling over Biden and intimidating and threatening. We've had two months of Trumpian lunacy of a madman with access to the nuclear codes. And Trump has fired the top officials in the Pentagon and replaced them with total toadies, lackeys, who would not stand up to him if he or ordered something insane. Uh, we're in a very, very precarious position right now. I've been calling for the enactment of the 25th Amendment, saying that we can't risk having somebody so deranged and delusional with access to nuclear codes, with veto power over the continuing existence of life on our planet. 
So, I mean, I think we're in a very dangerous situation. On top of that, we face the existential threat. I know that Biden will do something about that. The fact that he's appointed John Kerry to be his uh, uh, environmental liaison, that's great. Uh, so we can act on that. And we can extend the New Star Treaty once Biden gets in there. What I'm worried about is between now and then. Trump last week was looking for pretexts for bombing Iran. We've had a series of very close calls, uh, freedom of navigation operations, one just yesterday that almost led to conflict with the Russians. It's a, just too dangerous a world right now. So the lessons were that these crises cannot be controlled. That's what Kennedy and Khrushchev both learned, that these, once these crises develop, that rational efforts to control them just don't work and that we've got to prevent these crises from occurring. So we need to be working with the Russians. We need to be working with the Chinese to see our mutual interests, our common humanity, and to work together to resolve crises, not to allow them to develop. Professor, it was a great pleasure having you. Thank you, Matt. Take care. Thank you for listening. The next time we will come back, we will be analyzing Lyndon Johnson's presidency and the Vietnam War. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at McGill International Review for more up-to-date insight and analysis of global issues and international affairs.